real change agent. Real change agent. Real change agent. Real, real, real. Yo, yo, what is good, everyone? Welcome to the Real Change Agent Podcast. I am your host, Enrico Moses, a.k.a. the Real Change Agent. In this podcast, we're going to dive into the positive change that our guests have gone through. Today, we have an amazing, illustrious guest, a good homie of mine, a business partner, and someone who's just an amazing thought leader who I'm just super grateful to have with us, Douglas Emerson. Douglas, what is cracking? Welcome, my brother. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to, to chat ideas and, and see what happens. Yeah, man. It's Whenever we get together, it's like so many ideas are flowing. And, you know, there's there's a lot of things that you've gone through in your life things that I've gone through in my journey that we relate to. Um, and I'm just stoked that, you know, we're able to capture some of these moments. And, uh, you know, I feel like there's a lot of light that you can sh- can shed on some of the things you've done and some of the things you've accomplished. Um, just so, so for our listeners, you know, I'm just super happy to dive a little bit into your story, uh, you know, how you came out to LA and yeah, some of the major changes that you've taken on in your life to kind of get to where you are. So I'm, I'm super, super stoked to have you. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, you want me to just kind of dive in and give you a little brief if that, if that's, if that's chill. Yeah. You know, I would love to get, you know, uh, a understanding of, you know, where you grew up and kind of just like, how some of the major choices that you started making in your life, you know, and how that brought you to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, So I I grew up in Park City, Utah. Um, No, I'm not Mormon. A lot of people ask that. Utah is predominantly Mormon. Um, And I was actually born outside of Oakland, California, but I don't remember it since I moved when I was six months old. So Park City was kind of my my world. And it's it's very interesting. It's a ski town uh, in the winter and it's a biking town in the summer. And the Sundance Film Festival is there every year. So it's very much this kind of outdoor utopian bubble, almost. You know, it's, it's, it's very peaceful. It's, it's beautiful all year round. There's almost no crime there. So I grew up with this interesting conception of kind of what very, very peaceful existence was. And then when I first started to kind of break that down was, you know, middle of high school, I got very, very severe OCD. I was diagnosed and I started to really dive into some some pretty intense religious themes and some pretty intense philosophical themes, you know, searching for meaning. And I was very obsessed with it. And that kind of started to break down the walls of, is this world as peaceful as it looks? Or is there some, some very, very, very intense darkness that is going on as well? So I would say from a very early age, my mind was very opened up to the ideas that there's a lot more than what we experience and what we see and that those things very much affect us. And I guess that led me to ask a lot of questions and questions, you know, that people wouldn't necessarily ask themselves at the age of 16. What type of questions? Like at one point I was very obsessed for about four months with the idea that I was in a simulation, like matrix style. And this like, you know, going to English class, going to PE. But the only thing I was ever thinking about was trying to use a logical pattern to get my way out 
of being trapped in a simulation. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, and, and what these things did is, is, you know, in the time there were, there were these very serious existential crises, but looking back on it, it's interesting. It's like each one of those were little thought experiments that once I was able to really kind of untangle that puzzle of what's going on in my head, why am I thinking these things? It would lead me to a very, very profound realization about kind of an aspect of the way I worked and the aspect mm-hmm. of the way I dealt with reality and things of the sort. So mm-hmm. yeah, from an early age, you know, always questioning. And then I, I went to, to college in Boston. I um, went to film school. I originally actually wanted to be an engineer or a pastor, which is a weird combo. Um, <laughs> and then kind of moved out of that once I really, really started diving into film and making art. And that, that actually, I was introduced to Alan Watts, who's an amazing philosopher. You know, I still, I still read him thoroughly today, but one of the, the speeches he gave early on was this idea of, you know, what would you do if money were no object? Mm-hmm. And it's this beautiful, you know, and I, again, I was very logical. I needed a very, you know, A plus B equals C, C plus D equals E. Like it had to be a hundred percent, you know, I guess doubt free for me to really digest something and fully internalize it. And he laid it out so simply in the way that it's, you know, why would you spend your life doing something you hate to make money, to be able to survive, to continue doing something you hate? (laughs) And it just made sense. I was like, that's just stupid. That just doesn't make sense to me. Like, Mm -hmm. why would you do that? And then he basically outlined, flip that. If you do something you love, you're going to commit your time to it and your passion to it. And therefore you're going to become proficient. And if you're proficient, you can sell that and you can get money for that. And he, he just, he just made it make so much sense. And I literally, I was like three weeks out, going to apply to engineering school, Cal Poly. And I, I scrapped everything, rewrote it and applied to film school. Amazing. And then, yeah, it was, it was a very, cause it, it's, you know, I was looking for this, this kind of just something to really click in the idea that it's okay to do what you love, even if the world doesn't necessarily make it easy for you. And once I really clicked that it was possible, I just kind of went for it. And that led to me going to film school, starting my production company freshman year, dropping out of film school my junior year, and then moving to Los Angeles, you know, kind of on a whim. Um, and now I'm here and it's, you know, I've been two well, years. What, and- what made you drop out of film school? I want to kind of dive into that. What happened there? Um, I think there was, there was uh, two combinations that really led into this moment of wanting, it was, it was a pretty dramatic moment of wanting to leave. And the first one was, I just, I've never had a very great relationship with authority and that I, I need to understand what makes an authority legitimate to respect it. And that I need to understand why you get to tell me what to do. And if I understand it and it makes sense, okay, yeah, 100%, tell me what to do. But if it doesn't make sense, then I just, it's, it's, it's very, very disharmonious with me to then, you know, sit in a situation where I have to take that or sit in a situation where I have to subject myself to be under this authority that I, I don't really see as legitimate. And college, I'm not saying all colleges are this way because I'm obviously there's some absolutely wonderful, you know, universities out there that produce a lot of incredible work. But Emerson College was not necessarily a college that I felt was was pushing me in any way that seemed like it was needed. Um, I mean, my last semester, I missed 47 classes and got A's and B's. So like the school wasn't necessarily a big challenge. And I just realized very quickly that, you know, I'm paying a lot of money to an institution that 
not do I not want to do this work because I'm lazy, because obviously I wasn't. I was I was working full time, more than full time outside of school. But it was I don't want to do this work because I, I find no value in what I'm doing here. Right. And I think that was a really big moment of realizing that I wasn't upset because I didn't like school. I wasn't upset because I didn't like learning. I was upset because I was finding no value and I was spending exorbitant amounts of money to a place that I was pretty much just living there and then working. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't taking any of the classes seriously. So it was funny. I was actually in a class and there was this moment where I made this connection where number one, I realized I could absolutely support myself enough off of what I was doing work-wise to be able to, you know, leave college. And at the same time, I realized in that moment that I did not want to be there for this, mm. for, for the reason of, I just didn't find any value in what I was doing. And when those both clicked, it was kind of this moment of just fuck it. And that's the best way I can say it because <laughs> it, it's like, it, it, I didn't need to realize anything more. It wasn't this moment of epiphany where I was like, Oh my God, I know what I need to do. It was, I had known what I needed to do. And this was the moment I finally had enough like evidence to basically solidify that argument. So mm. it wasn't this big glorious moment, but what I actually did is I stood up in the middle of my lecture and I walked out <laughs> and I just, and I never went back to that class. And I just like, you know, I, I did finish out the semester in other classes, but that class specifically is called po po post-colonial cinema. And on the first day of class, a teacher showed up with like 27 copies of a front page of a newspaper with her on it, receiving an award. And she gave it to every kid in the class to keep for their own collection. And I was like, you're the fucking worst. <laughs> like, are you serious? Like, I understand being proud of your awards. Absolutely be proud of them. But don't use your position of authority to force everyone else to like fakely clap for you. I just, I just already that class is kind of the epitome of why I didn't want to be there. And then, so that was a class that I, you know, left dramatically. So, so I feel like you're following Alan Watts. You're, you know, you're realizing that, you know, that place of college, you're not finding that space of joy. And there's another place where, and you're talking about, you know, you're, you're tapping into some financial abundance. I kind of want you to speak on that where you're like, you know, I'm making money with this company. What, what was happening there? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there were two things at that moment. Number one was I, the biggest, especially in, so one of the things in starting a film production company is that it's incredibly hard to convince someone to, that you're going to be able to make a complex piece of content when you have nothing to show for it. So that, that first hump of starting a, a production company is incredibly difficult. So what I was able to do, because you know I'm, I'm very lucky, I have parents who were able to, they, they invested money for me when I was young, a lot of it was my money that I you know, had done through lawn mowing and, and lemonade stands and such, but they helped out, of course, they're loving parents. And once that had vested, over, you know, over the course of, let's say, 10, 12 years, you know, it was enough for me to buy a camera and to buy mm -hmm. enough film equipment to then go out to these companies and say, hey, I'm going to make you a commercial for absolute free. I'm not going to charge you anything. All I ask is that you give me the time of your people to be able to do it. And I got to put your brand on it. And you don't tell anybody how much it costs. Mm -hmm. And I did that with a lot of companies. And what I was able to do is I was able to, in the first two years of college, when, you know, I didn't necessarily need to be making money because I was living on campus and, you know, I had dining hall access and such. I basically backloaded all of this content and I backloaded all of these commercials 
that I would I wouldn't charge anything, but I would I would invest my own personal money into making them really, really, really top tier. So then by the time I dropped out, I was I had enough work that I was actually now charging. I was working with MIT startups, I was working with some local companies, and then the big catalyst was that I actually one of my uh, good friends, Katya Alexander, she came to me and she had gotten the opportunity to produce a feature film on climate change, or we, we don't like the term climate change, it, more environmental crisis, mm-hmm. because climate change is, it was actually invented by ad agencies to make the term less scary. And because <laughs> change isn't bad, change is amazing. Change so, is amazing. Change is amazing. <laughs> so like calling it climate change makes it really easy to, to not be scared of it. Um, and the thing is, is, is it's not just about the environmental change in, or the environment changing and global warming. There's just so many things we're doing to this planet and I won't, I won't get into it now. But essentially, I got that opportunity and she came to me and said, do you want to co-produce this with me? Mm-hmm. So in the time that, you know, I was moving towards wanting to leave, I suddenly had this, this kind of underbelt of, of income that was not a ton through freelancing and through my company, but enough to really keep me, my head above water. And then this feature film came in and that was enough. You know, that was a year project. So I knew that if I left college, I had a year of runway to really get my shit together um, and make sure that I could keep going. So I just decided, you know what, fuck it. Like I have the ability, I have the time, which is very important. And I have the skills to be able to start monetizing, why not? And, and that all connected kind of in that class when I was able to realize that. And, and I guess the reason is, is this college is definitely one way to garner value, absolutely but it's not the only way. And there's so like, anybody can build value inherently. That's one of the beautiful things we have as human beings. Just you like creating a sentence is creating meaning and value out of nothing. So it's like, we have this ability and we we almost get tricked into this idea that the only way you can get value is if you're given it by authority. Mm -hmm. And if you're gonna create your own value and you're gonna go out and you're going to go put that and start your own company, all the authorities are going to try and kill you for your value and they hate you for it. And it's going to be hard. And, you, and, and, you know, and I'm not saying it's not hard, but I think people really don't understand the idea of value and value is in this market. Value is something that can be manifested into cash mm-hmm. in, in a business perspective. So if you come to a company with value, you created a bad businessman will say, fuck you. Why'd you do this without me? A good businessman will say, wow, this is some really nice value. Let's make a deal. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing was like, if I generate enough value to be able to be an asset to a company, then you know, I'll be able to, to get that, that my financial feet under me you know, without necessarily having to change what I'm trying to do. Because you can, if, you, if you're generating the value, then you get to do whatever you want. You're the one calling the shots, but you're also the one committing to taking that value and turning it into money and turning it into a financial base. So, you know, college is a very good way to put you in a system in which you plug in value and then you're handed money, but it's boring and it's, it's a nine to five and there's no satisfaction because the way that capitalism works and is essentially break down the job into the smallest, most devalued roles and hire minimum wage workers to do those individual things because then you need less skilled labor to put it together. And it's the assembly line. It's how Ford did it. And it's like, I didn't want to commit myself to a job that uh, not even, not even metaphorically in the eyes of my employer was like the value of one tenth of a person. Mm-hmm. Like that just, that, that sucks. So I, I basically said, let's create some value on my own 
let's not go through the system and let's become valuable enough that the system wants you. Mm. And then that the beautiful thing there is in that point you have leverage. So then you can start leveraging your value to start changing the system and start shifting it in your favor. And, and, and not, not, not in your favor in that trying to be selfish, but more creating like a bubble around you where your voice isn't going to become corrupted. And what that does is that, that invites other people to come and join that bubble. And it's, it's essentially building an infrastructure for free speech through art that doesn't extend just to what you can say or not say on TV, but in that what you create is very much your speech too. And mm. it's, it's being able to, to create whatever you want and have, not have that impeded by resource or by regulation. Mm. And so I, it's amazing what I see you talking about when you're talking about Ford and you know how Ford is, is also turning his employees into consumers and how naturally you're a producer and how, you know, just taking that, that choice to say, I'm not, I'm not going to be just a consumer and, you know, wait for my employer to give me a check and then go use that check to consume and pay my living. Like I'm going to become a producer and create value where I take that value and then I can create projects that I'm really intrinsically uh, about, you know, that, that speaks for who I am as a person and what I stand for. And I don't have to do things that's possibly corrupted to, to what your, what your speech is. Uh, I, I, I so vibe with that. Oh yeah. I appreciate that. And, and I think one of the important things also to know is that I am a consumer too. I love consuming content. I don't know if there's a show on Netflix, HBO or Hulu. I have all the subscriptions. I literally, I like, in my, in my business, I, I put aside money every month to be able to watch all as much content as I possibly can because, number one, I think it's very interesting how content shows us what people want because obviously it's being made in the exact image that people want because these companies do it that way. That's what they do is they try to create that. So it's, it's very interesting to see that. But also, you know, I, I also love Facebook, back to, kind of back to the consumer bit, is I don't necessarily think there is there has to be this massive demonization or demonization of the consumer or even of, of capitalism necessarily in that I think the issue is because capitalism as let's, you know, take, let's take governments out. Let's take people. Let's just basically look at capitalism. If it was a, if it was a system with just, you know, hypothetical people, capitalism in and of itself does not limit speech and it does not limit creation. It actually very much, you know, pushes forward innovation and creation. But the issue is, and also capitalism, and this is, this can definitely be argued, but I don't think capitalism inherently can create monopolies. I think the only thing that creates monopoly is government intervention or the intervention of violence and basically force and, and oppression. And I don't necessarily think that's inherently tied to capitalism. So what, when I'm saying, you know, being able to create what you want to create without people stopping you, it's more along the lines of understanding that if you take out the, the opinions of all the people doing business and just see that they're doing business, there's very obvious places where you are going to have a very difficult time saying things. And, you're gonna, and there's not a lot of money in certain places because that's the way the capitalism oppression works now is it's not about what regulations are going to stop you from saying things because we have free speech in this country. It's about where are we going to allocate the money? Where are we going to put the resources? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if you don't want 
a factory to be successful and, and you don't own that factory, there's a, a lot of things you can do financially to hurt them. You could mm -hmm. buy land around them, choke out their resources, you know, and, there's, mm -hmm. and, and we, I, I don't think people necessarily understand that oppression is not just in speech. Oppression is not just in, you know, rules. It's, it's in force and it's in these very subtle ways of force that are used to push down on people all the time. And so my mindset isn't necessarily demonize the system and say this whole system is fucked. It's more understanding the points where force is being applied and who's applying them and being able to work your plan to account for that and strategize around that. And then hopefully eventually be able to alleviate that pressure. And, and, cause, and that's the issue is, is if you're able to alleviate pressure, you have a free market. But the pressure of government regulation and politicians and, and businesses with, with you know, biases and interests, basically they're leveraging this money to create little zones of movement and zones of influence. And all I'm saying is instead of participating in their zone and playing their rules, just create your own. You just, just build your own. And the way you can do that inherently is through value and specifically in film and in the art and creative industries, you know, you can create something that is so valuable and before anybody sees it and then hand it to them like George Lucas, you can write Star Wars in college and then you can go to, you know, the company that distributed, I can't remember who it is right now. Uh, anyway, and then you slap Star Wars, A New Hope on their desk and you basically say, I have an entire saga. <laughs> I'm going to give this to you for a dollar, but I direct it and I get all of merchandising. Merchandising didn't exist in film before that. Now, what's the one series that merchandised universally? Star Wars. And why mm -hmm. is George Lucas a billionaire? Because of that. Because he knew he had value, not just in a film, but in the ability to create a merchandisable universe. So what he did is he leveraged the fact that he sold this incredibly valuable film for a dollar, but got himself attached to its creative direction and then used that to build his sphere of influence, which was not necessarily directly associated there. And I think that's, that's the kind of the mindset of like, number one, you can build value for yourself. Number two, you can use that to free yourself. Mm. That's amazing. So how are you taking that right now like where where are you doing like yeah give us some examples of how you're utilizing that in your life right now yeah absolutely i mean i think the one the one main main project that i'm working on right now that is kind of the a really good example of being able to you know generate value cheaply generate value in-house and then start to upsell that is a pilot that i'm producing called seven south mm. so and I'm producing it's produced the pilot's done you know we're not pitching and shopping the showrunners but basically my very first client ever, which is, you know, the poetry of this is amazing. And one of the things I always say is if something in your life seems poetic, listen to that because poetry, when, when people write poetry, what are we trying to do? We're trying to capture the beauty of the universe. So if there's a natural poetry, it's like, that's the beauty of the universe naturally trying to communicate with you. Mm -hmm. So it's like seeing that parallel, like you make art, well, so does everything else. So as much as you should listen to your art and look at your art and other people's, look at the world's art and look mm. at animals art because that's also just as important. They're expressions of conscious beings. So, mm. you know, really this whole thing's interconnected kind of thing. But anyway, so I, I essentially, my first client uh, came to me about two and a half years after we started working together and we hadn't really spoken in probably six months. There was no, there was no, no work, work for us to collaborate on. 
And he basically said, I have this idea for a show that I've been working on for about three years. And it's about addiction and recovery in Boston, specifically alcoholism and heroin. Um, and I had a friend in Boston who was addicted to, addicted to heroin. Uh, I, was, I wasn't with him during the days he was addicted, but I was with him in recovery. And I, I went to a couple of AA meetings with him. So that was a world that I wasn't unfamiliar with. And actually the first project I worked with Barry, um, who's Barry Rosenthal, he's the, the uh, client I'm talking about, um, was, a, was a documentary on uh, addiction recovery. So, you know, this is a world that I am, am not well-versed, but I'm definitely versed in. Um, and so we basically decided that we were going to raise about $45,000 and make a pilot and then pitch that to networks. You know, he had connections in the film industry, you know, above where I was at. And one of the things that I, I thought was really important and, you know, using a $50,000 budget, which in a, a 30 minute, you know, TV show is pennies, yeah. not even pennies, it's peanuts. You know, Netflix has never, ever done an original series for less than 4 million an episode. And we were trying to make an episode for $40,000, $45,000. It was like, it's fucking tough. But one of the things we were able to do is we were able to, to really, really, I mean, we, we spent time on this thing. We've spent about eight months writing the script. Mm -hmm. We then did pre-production for three months. And, and basically what, what ended up happening is, is I was able to take all this talent and all these amazing people I had worked with in Emerson and, you know, that I, I accumulated into my network. And this was a project that finally we were all doing what we wanted. We were all doing a narrative show because we've been doing documentaries and advertising and blah, blah, blah. But everybody really wanted this narrative show. So being able to let everybody run wild and everyone do their own thing and then let that creativity, you know, basically we, we were able to make this show look like it was a $4 million episode. You know, we were able to make this look like it should belong on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone and anyone who's watched it is in love with it. And the reason we were able to do that is because we understood that this isn't about the money. This is about using the minimal resources we have, not like an ego thing. Like, hey guys, look, I have a $40,000 film. Mm -hmm. But more like, hey, we have this, this freed up capital to make something really valuable. How are we gonna do this? And, and we would sit around and we'd smoke joints and talk back and forth. And also one of the things in AA, that's a very important thing I'd like to note, is weed is okay. <laughs> That's, and that's the thing is, is there's actually a very big distinction and an argument between because because of, of weed and, and, you know, heroin and, and all the I like, different things. I like to call it cannabis. No, I'm just kidding. Can, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Cannabis. I'm just messing with that you. Is, that, yeah, that is the correct thing. <laughs> and the thing is that sometimes it's like, it's interesting because cannabis has such a different connotation than weed. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> anyway, so we, we just understood that by putting as much value as we could and by investing way more time then you know was actually kind of there almost we were able to put in and create something that was so valuable that now you know we're pitching it to networks and if it gets picked up then you know that's a show on on some network for a couple million it's like going from forty thousand, flipping it that high is insane but it's not because your value is worth way more than that mm -hmm. like that's a small flip and that's what people don't realize is that your value can scale to whatever level of financial ability you want it's just a matter of, are you willing to put in the work to follow it? Are you willing to really, you know, do the legwork to catch up? And if you are, then there's not really much that can stop you. Mm, I love that. And I feel like that realization of what you're worth, where do you think you really tapped into that? Like, where do you think you honed into, like, your, 
your high value that you have for yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, I think it's very interesting. I've gone through a lot of fluctuations, but I mean, go, becoming a, a very, very, very devout Christian, very young as I did, it's interesting because Christianity has this way of making you feel like you're the most valuable person in the world and also the most devalued person <laughs> in the world. It's it's weird contradiction because it's like, you're amazing and God loves you, but that's only because he forgave you because you fucking suck. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the New Testament. Like, that's that's the whole thing. And it's, and it's like, so it's just this weird paradox. So I, I always had this kind of weird sense of, of belonging and sense of like, you know, my life has meaning, my life has purpose because of this. But underneath that, I also had this sense of, but that's all kind of bullshit. You're a terrible person. Mm. So I, I think the, the working and, and it's interesting. So I, I also produce music and my, my producer name is Thoughtwork. Mm. And that's because I love Thoughtwork. I love thinking. It's one of my favorite activities. So over the course of, you know, these years doing Thoughtwork and putting in all of this work on, on asking questions, even if they're scary, like, why am I, why do I feel unsatisfied? Mm-hmm. Why am I so upset? Why do I want to kill myself? Just like myself, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's, there's these questions inside of us that because we don't, we're scared of the answer. We don't ask. Mm-hmm. So the issue with that is that's like a fragmented hard drive. It's like you got half of an equation and it's just kind of sitting there taking up space and it wants to be solved. And, and the fact that it's not being solved, means your subconscious is going to try and solve that at all times. Mm. And that's, that's, a, that's kind of the weird phenomenon is if you start a problem and you don't finish it, your subconscious will continually work at that problem until it solves it. And when it solves it, then you'll find the answer. And, that, and so one of the things that you can do with this, and this is one of the things that I kind of realized I was doing is I was asking these insanely deep questions. And the second I asked it, it wouldn't go away until I answered it. And it would just sit there and sit there. And it was not a fun, necessarily fun experience, but <laughs> through, throughout all of these, this growth and all of the, the working in the business, you know, I was always just in my mind thinking like, I'm going to one day align that inner feeling of no value to my, my, my kind of shell of my whole life is meaningful. Mm. I'm, and, and I'm going to find out what this disparity is. And one of the things in my mind, it's in my personality is that if, the, if I know I can do something now, I just do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't see the point of waiting. And this goes for good and bad things. It's like, I would much rather do six days of work and then rest. And then instead of having a day off and then six days of work. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's, it's just this idea of, of working towards something mm-hmm. and then being rewarded kind of once you're there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had this mindset, and I was always working on this disparity and like, and it's, it's led into this practice that I call self-sentience of just feeling what you want to be feeling. Your body's the peak of 4 billion years of evolution. Your mind, at least for me, is 23 years old. Like I'm not smarter than my body. So if my body wants to feel something, if my body says, hey, you feel like you want to die, instead of my mind being like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. I should probably listen and I should probably let my body tell me. So it's things and, and, and because we experience these emotions physically, you know, when you when you get heartbroken, it's not just a mental thing. You experience a physical pain in your chest. So there's obviously this connectivity there. So I, I really focused on instead of trying to, like, muscle my way through this and just, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to be productive no matter what. 
you know, I did that for a little bit, but I started to realize that I w- it's, it's like I was committing myself to the idea of what I wanted to do for the absolute wrong reason. And I was doing it because I thought it was what I needed to do. I thought, you know, me being successful in business is what I needed to get me to the point of satisfaction. And, and I think where it's do really you think you learned that from? I, I feel like it's, again, boils back down to, to kind of Christianity and, and a little bit of religious upbringing. The idea of that reward is given after hard work and punishments given after mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I had this mindset that if I work incredibly hard and I just commit everything in my life to this, I will be rewarded. Like I'm going to get the reward. I'm going to get what I, what I want. And anytime I made a mistake, I felt like there was, you know, this way of being punished for that as well. So it's, it's the stakes were really high and I was consistently under pressure and consistently stressed. And I felt like the man because I was like, I'm doing what the startups do. I'm doing what Steve Jobs did. I'm working myself to death. Mm. And it sucked. It was so miserable. Mm. And I think realizing that and actually admitting that I hated what I was doing and this was before Los Angeles, really shifted me into to understanding what did I want to be doing. And when I said, what do I want to be doing? My, my sight started to shift more towards Los Angeles. And, and I, it kind of made me realize that this, this weird shell of what we think we should be just is absolutely an illusion. It's just, it just does not exist. And we, we craft this based on the things we're scared of. So let's say if you're sitting in a place, like let's say you have, a minimum wage job and you're, you're very unhappy with your job. Well, so what you're going to do is you're going to craft this image around yourself as almost a defense mechanism to that, that, you know what, one day maybe I'll be able to work incredibly hard and get to this point. And it's, it's true. You absolutely could do that. But the issue is, is abstracting these ideas. The more you abstract it into a daydream, the further away it be actually can be manifested. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you're sitting at a nine to five and for five years, you dream of one day doing something, well, it's going to be way harder to actually step forward and then do that because you've established a mindset of potential movement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You've established. So, and, and so one of the things that I realized in this moment is that I had by, by basically setting the standard for myself of perfection, I was working myself to death for no reason because it's actually impossible to get there. Because even when you get to a point, your mind is always going to project further because I created this narrow pathway of never being there. Mm -hmm. So I think kind of erasing that and then realize and and realizing that if you want to do something, do it right the fuck now Mm -hmm. or do it when you can. You know, it's like if you if you want to do something, there's literally no no one stopping you. But the, the, the the hardest part about it is probably what you want to do is so abstract that you don't necessarily know what the steps are. So you have all this motivation and all this like, oh, I wanna be out of this situation, I wanna do this, but you don't actually know how to take that step. So that motivation that gets stopped by the abstractness of the problem then becomes resentment and then becomes spite because you feel like you're not doing it because you're lazy. And it's like, no, you're not doing it because you don't know how. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference than being lazy and not knowing how. And the thing is, is when you realize you don't know how, when you de-abstract the idea that you can already do this, then you can learn how to do it. And then you do it. Yeah, I think that that is the major part of change that is the block and the obstacle that I think that 
for many people without knowing what the steps are, it's like there's this big, dark obstacle in front of them. And, you know, I think that what you said, it's a mind frame, knowing that you can already do that starts to clear out that darkness and add light to it. And then there's steps and there's a pathway to get through that obstacle. What do you well, think? I- what do you think are some of the obstacles, not to cut you off, but what do you think are some of the obstacles you know, before you moved to LA that you were able to like create steps and, and create a, a clear pathway out here. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, what, one thing I just want to touch on really quickly, it'll just take it, take a little bit right before that is I feel like understanding that you have the innate ability as a conscious being and a living person to do something is amazing, but also then understanding that there's a lot, and this is the obstacles that you probably don't have the skill set to do it right now. And I think that's a really important distinction is understanding that you absolutely 100% can accomplish that. Whatever that, that abstracted idea is, you can accomplish that. Absolutely. But you probably or maybe don't have the skill sets you need. And that's the obstacles, I would say. Once you start to de-abstract the problem, you'll realize things that you don't know how to do. And what do you do then? learn it so when, when you start to realize you, you can once you once you really do your research and instead of sit down and daydream like sit down and go to a computer and be like all right how the, how does the industry work how does this work what are the st-? like and, and and just do your research there's so much information on google i, mean, I would probably say 75 percent of what i learned about business is done on google and like and taxes too you can do taxes on google it's crazy um <laughs> But so, and that's the thing. So I just, it's just, once you start to de-abstract, like let's, let's, I can, we can look at it a little bit more of a, uh, an example in terms of like what I wanted, you know, where I'm aiming at. So let's take Steven Spielberg, not to like, you know, set the sights too high or anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, nah, that's normal, you know. <laughs> uh, but let's just take Steven Spielberg and be like, wow, look, watch his movies, watch Jurassic Park. Oh my God. He built a T-Rex. That's crazy. Then look at, you know, look at all the amazing things he's done that seem like they're so big. There's no way I could ever do that or anyone could ever do that. Well, then look at his career path. I would say all of this, like he did all these amazing things, but there's a single film that defined his trajectory and ability to do that. And, his, and really it, the single film that defined his ability to make money people happy and get him into a system in which his value was being leveraged and everything came from there. And that film was Jaws. And basically, so Steven Spielberg's story, right? He's, he's in Los Angeles, he didn't go to film school. He's made a couple of films, like, you know, just him and his friends. And then he actually he starts breaking into the Paramount Studios every day. And he'd break into Paramount Studios. And I, this, is, this, is what I, I, this is what I've been told and this is what I've read. I could be wrong, so if I'm wrong, <laughs> sorry, people don't yell at me, cinephiles. Um, but he would go and he would break into a room an, an empty office of Paramount and he would put his name on the door and he would just sit in there and pretend to be working at Paramount. And then one day this guy walks by and was like, what are you doing? Like, I see you coming here every day. And they started chatting and then he gave Spielberg a job. And then Spielberg moved up in, in the jobs and then he started directing TV movies and a couple episodes of the Twilight Zone, just, you know, basic stuff that people probably don't even realize Steven Spielberg directed. Like these were the things he was before he was Spielberg. And this was in his twenties and he was doing it all through his twenties. And then when he was 25, 
he got the chance to direct Jaws. And the thing with Jaws is what Spielberg did more than anything was create the first blockbuster film. That film made so much money. It, was, it, it blew everyone's expectations of what a film could even do in the box office. It, like, it shook the whole world and like, you can make that much money with movies? Mm. And then Spielberg was the golden child of Hollywood. And, and that's the thing is he was able to, to leverage his value up and up and up until he had something that was so valuable and then he in, 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 like cemented himself as the reason it was valuable. And then he got picked up, you know, the system and, and the system grabbed him. And if you look at Spielberg's films, I don't think anybody in the world can say Spielberg sold out. Right. I, I think you can say that he made some weird films and some of them weren't good, but none of them really are sellout films. They're all so true and so soulful and so full of heart. And it's because he was able to make that his brand. He was able to make that his value and leverage up. So like you, you break that down. So in, in terms of my perspective, you know, I want to get to the same point. So what can I do now? Well, first I need to know how to make content. I need to know how to make stuff and I need to know how to do business. So the first place to go for that is advertising. So I did advertising for a long time in Boston and I didn't do it with an agency. I just learned how to deal with clients one-on-one, -on -one, how to sell projects, how to make money and then how to not sacrifice my art. And then from there, it's like, okay. So if, once I felt like I had the, enough confidence that I could make good content. Well, if, if I'm good, if I suddenly have value, I feel like I have value, where should I go to leverage this value? Well, if I want to be in Hollywood, I should go to Hollywood. And, and just, it's just, it's simple things like that is like you take in the fact that you're moving, you're moving the whole country and maybe you're leaving behind friends and family. Like, wow, it's a big decision, mm -hmm. but boil it down to just like the bare minimum. Oh, I, sh I want to, I want to eventually end up in Hollywood as a filmmaker. So I should probably go start making films in Hollywood. Might as well be there now. Exactly. And, and it's that whole mindset of like, there are things in your life that are obviously going to be weights. And I'm not saying weights in terms of bad weights, but just understanding that relationships take effort and relationships, friends, family, you know, romantic, all of these things take a lot of bandwidth because they should. Obviously you, you need to be able to commit time to these people and commit you know, emotional connection and love and all these things, but just understand that that is a part of the equation. When you're looking at where you want to go and what your worldview is and where you want to be, you need to let go of the idea that there are things that you can't let go of. And the beautiful thing about that is once you let go of the idea that you, ha you can't let go of things, then you, you kind of remember why you don't want to let go of them. Because you're, like, you're, like, you should cultivate relationships and hold on to things. But if you have this mindset that once you have a strong relationship, you can never let go of that, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you're building prison walls. Yeah. And, and, and there's, there's like habits we get into and assumptions we make about our own lives. And this also goes to that projection of you get so entrenched in a habit that it feels like it can't ever change. And that it's a moral issue if you change it. Like it's, it's weird in movies when people are like, oh, I feel so morally obligated to hold on to this this remnant of my sister and it's like why like i understand if you absolutely love her and you want to hold on to it amazing but if this is bringing you nothing but pain and you want to get rid of, rid of it where is the morals and holding it on mm -hmm. like your sister's not alive anymore and this is bringing you agony so what's really stopping you and it's this abstract idea of 
basically this this thing that you you've entrenched in yourself so it's just like when you're when you're approaching you know when you're when you're really approaching the whole playing field of what you want to do with your life and, and where you want to go just realize that everything is is completely fluid including your life and your relationships and in that way you can really start to understand what you value and where you can create value and then you can just start maneuvering yourself into those positions Mm. and you feel like that's part of like the relation relationship building process that you see is is just like something that you've been working on something that you've been stepping into through all these realizations yeah and and not necessarily relationship building but relationship just i guess being very in tune with it and and it's you know change is inevitable change is the way the world works i mean if you look at yin and yang and this is this is the thing that i find so funny about the images of yin and yang is like that image still doesn't do it justice because that image isn't moving like the actual yin and yang is not a still thing because when it's still it looks like two separate things but together it's just it's moving and that's the state of change it's this consistent state of motion and waves and flow and i feel like a healthy relationship is one that can surf, can move with the flow. It doesn't break if it gets lifted or, or turned or, or flexed. And it's not even necessarily painful. So like, I feel like a healthy relationship takes just kind of like, doesn't even necessarily look at what's happening as conflict. It's more just like we're, the, the world is moving us in certain waves and we're committing to you know, helping each other along this path. But I think it's also really important to realize that because there's not necessarily an obligation there in that, where am I going with this? I, I just feel like people are too scared to let go of friendships and let go of relationships hmm. because they have this idea that it's either weak or it's disloyal or this kind of this weird thing of like, you're not allowed to move forward in life. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to change. You're not allowed to shift. And you see it in these stupid Disney high school films where somebody starts to become a little bit different and all of their friends like ridicule them. It's like, you're just not the same person. It's like, why is that a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Like and why? changing, changing our minds, changing our opinions about things a couple yeah, years later. Exactly. And also changing who, who we are, like fluidly changing what we're into. And it's like, I feel like when we start trying to hold on to things and define ourselves as these static beings, each one of those points, as I was kind of talking about before, is a pressure point. Like if, you're, if you start holding the flow in this relationship and you're not going to let go of it, that relationship's going to get very tense and that relationship's going to get very, very agitated because it's, it, it needs to be free. It needs to be moving. And then in that way, and this is also a very, very, very difficult thing, is that if somebody that you very, very much care about wants to leave, you have to let them. Mm-hmm. like it's it's you like that's also the flow is in the same place that you have the freedom to leave and do whatever you want so do they so a relationship is something that is actually amazing because it's two people who are freely choosing to spend time together and to work together mm-hmm. but i f- feel like the second you take that and start trying to like clamp down on it and say it can never end then then it's just you're, you're on a road to a bad place so just in, basically in that, like understanding that everything in your life is fluid and that's 100% okay. You don't have to have a stable lockdown life to be happy. In fact, I would argue that's going to make you miserable. The entire movie American Beauty is about that. 
about how like the suburbia it's a great film and and it's just just like and bruce lee also talks about it as well like be like water water can flow and water can crash you know don't try to define what you're doing or why you're doing it just do what feels right and always be in tune with that and and you're really going to be able to flow around a lot of obstacles Mm, yeah flowing and being able to accept that change i think is they go hand in hand and i think that you know you spoke so beautifully about yin and yang and how they actually come together and how they are one and just being able to you know see the differences because you know i do see in in my obstacles that i've overcome just being able to let go of some of my self-limiting beliefs you know of either what I can accomplish or, you know, what a relationship should look like. I feel like, like you said, there's so much power in being able to let go of that and trusting the universe and, and following that flow of like, where are things going? Where are things moving? Um, and if things are going to be together, let it be out of choice. Like let it be out of the strength of choice rather than like that pressure point, like you were speaking of, of like holding that together, you know, out of this will. Absolutely. I, th- I think kind of a funny, a funny way to, to describe the difference is like the difference between jazz and elevator music. Mm-hmm. It's like they're both hypothetically the same musicians playing the same instruments, but one of them has soul because everyone wants to be there. Mm-hmm. And one <laughs> of them is just kind of this manufactured like fill noise. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's just like, that's kind of business. Is like, and, and that's the way the, the world is, is like you could you could go through life with this very specific set of like exact things. And it's going to be the like textbook what everyone should have, but it sucks. It's just boring music. Or you could just go and, and really commit to the music you want to play and what you want to love and find other people. And I think that's the key is like, if you love something, well, it exists because someone else loves it too. Mm-hmm. And they made it, which means if two people love it in a world of 6 billion, 7 billion people, there's a hell of a lot more people that love it too. So in that case, if you, if you really, really want to go in a direction, just find other people along the way, you know, become like a little nomadic tribe. And mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that's really, important. you're not alone. You just may, haven't necessarily found the right people yet. Mm. How do you go about finding the right people on your path? Like, what does that look like for you? I, I would say, it's, it's interesting. And I, I actually had a big, in terms of one of the things in terms of biz, business networking events that was very conflict conflicting for me is I, I don't like them. I don't like business networking events. I think they're pointless. I think they're kind of boring. And I think it's, it's, it's elevator music. It's this forced way to do things. So if I'm trying to find people that align with the way I want to like, do things, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the places that I want to be. Like go to the places where you want to be, go and do the things that you want to do on your own. And if you, if you find someone at the place that you want to be at, who wants to be at there too, well, look at that. Now you actually found some real commonality and just, and, and then you can go from there. And I think it's important to like, don't play by the, the system's rules until you find someone who you can break away from. Just start from scratch. Just go do your own thing from the beginning because there's other people who are also doing that and you'll probably meet them doing your own thing rather than doing the, the systems thing. Right. 
So just just being out there, being yeah, being in that present moment. Yeah, well, I also think starting the process of of whatever you're building alone. Like don't don't wait for someone to then start. Start start building, start going, start going, and that's going to be when you're going to find the people on the way. So it's not like you're just waiting around. It's like you're like you're like okay, I want to start a business. What's the first thing I need to do to start this business? I probably need to go and find clients. Well, where would I find clients who want to work in the way that I work? Maybe these events. So then you go to those events. And then at those events, if you find someone who's trying to start a similar company and they went to that event too, you know, you guys are already in a similar mindset. So it's like trying to find a girl you, trying to find like a virgin Mormon in a club in Los Angeles is not the place to look. (laughs) (laughs) So go to Utah kind of thing. And it's like, and it has nothing to do with sexuality or sex. It's just like, know what you're looking for and know the place not to find it. So you can know the place to find it and then go there. Mm. So you feel like getting, getting clear around your intention, what you love to do, you know, finding that path, you know, starting on your own. I love that. You know, I think that's amazing key advice and just a point of like, whatever you want to do with other people, get that started by yourself and and then start going out there and linking up with people who are kind of already signaling, you know, by going to the same event or, you know, maybe they're part of the same online community or whatever, however you guys are, are linking up they're already signaling like I'm interested in the same things you're interested in and I'm putting in work. Um, You know, there's a, there's a similar passion there. Exactly. And I also think, you know, let's say if imagine the person that you would want to approach you to invite you into the business you want to do. Like imagine if you were at a networking event, like how would, what's the best way that someone could approach you, someone like who's doing this already. Right. Mm. And then embody that when you show up and approach other people. Cause it's like, if you're already doing it right, then you can kind of approach with like, Hey, do you like, do you want to be a part of this kind of thing? So it's like, if, if you, if instead of waiting for a leader to come along, take that leadership role. And when you take that leadership role and start pushing your own thing forward, then other people who didn't necessarily want to be leaders, but really want to be involved will probably be very, very loyal people that will work with you because they're not working with you because they like you, not that they don't like you. But they want to do the exact same thing, but they didn't step up and do it yet. And so you gave them the opportunity. So, and that's the and yang, same thing. There always has to be someone first, but they're not, as, they're not more important than the people who follow. Mm-hmm. It's just, you need someone to start the flow so that other people can join in. But once you're in the flow, you're all the same. You're all in the flow. It doesn't right. matter how you got there. So right. I feel like there's this weird idea that if like you're the leader, you need to be the fucking leader. And it's like, no, just like, do what you want to do. And then if other people like what you're doing, then they'll just start doing it with you. You don't mm-hmm. have to establish this tyrannical hierarchy. It's just like, just don't feel the need to rely on people. So then when people come up, it's like, wow, you're actually expanding. You're mm-hmm. not just, you're not just holding together. You're expanding because you're self-sufficient. So four self-sufficient, four self-sufficient people in the same room have the capacity to do unbelievable things. Yeah. And I think that's one of the powers you have, as a filmmaker is understanding that, yeah, you're a leader and you're, you know, you're helping to bring this vision and it takes so many other people for them to step into their leadership, for them to be practicing, you know, their passions to make any type of real film project 
a, a success. You know, it can't happen with, with one person. And I think that, like, you know, listening to you talk about that documentary, I'm really curious of, like, how that shifted your your or created your worldview you know going to to the different countries that you've you've gone to and you know just kind of creating that type of film project um you know bringing you to where you are now yeah i mean it's interesting because i would say it shifted my worldview in two ways that are very important and one was just traveling places and seeing different cultures and meeting people Hmm. i mean they say travel is the uh the antidote to ignorance which I 100% believe because, you know, just being able to fold yourself in someone else's culture that is incredibly alien, but then in that, being able to appreciate the beauty of that and then also seeing the kind of the, the, the building blocks you share in common because at the base of every culture, and I like to say this, is that every human being kind of knows the same thing, but through the different cultures and the different times they were brought up and it's taken many different shapes. Mm. So like, it's really a cool thing to be able to sit in the culture long enough to then see the place where your culture and their culture touch and where they were, where they both came from. And and just like, when you're able to do that, you're able to number one, realize that everyone in the world is really, really, really like so literally part of one family. We're all, we're all one species. And then because of that, you're able to see this. And the second thing is that, all of these rules and all of these weird in like illusionary abstract walls of, of different countries and different ideas and different religions, they're all just not actually there. And when I say not actually there, obviously they exist in our minds and we've created them. But when you're standing in India and you're talking to someone on the street who begs for food and you're having a conversation, I don't see any walls. I don't see any rules. I don't see. And it's just like, these are things that they, they are so real that they cause us to almost, not almost, they cause people to kill each other, but they don't actually exist in the world. They're these, these things that we made up and just, just being able to differentiate. And I call it the game. It's like society is really a game. It's, it's a game of, it's a game of expansion and it's a game of cooperation and it's all of these things. But at the end of the day, it's not actually the world. It's not actually life. It's not actually, it's, it's just this kind of really fun game we've used to, to generate meaning and also create survivability and, and all these different things. But I think it's really important to understand that, that you as a human, are, you don't have to play the game. You do, quote unquote, because there's all these uses of force, but understanding that separation of the rules of society and all these things that I'm told to do and I'm told to be and these assumptions of, of everything that our world is, they, they are as real as the game of Monopoly in that you can play it if you want, mm-hmm. you, can, you can follow it, but you also, you don't have to play by those rules, but you also have to realize that you're still unfortunately accountable to the consequences mm-hmm. because we live in a, a world that has police officers in jail, which is, and that, that's a whole nother thing is like, we, we, we have all of these rules to keep society in order, but I, I truly believe that the next step of human evolution is, is to evolve past the need to define the rules. And in the same way, like a painter, when they start out, they learn all the techniques, they learn all the theories, they learn all this stuff. And then when they get to a masterful level, they don't need any of that. It's internalized. They just understand it on an incre- incredibly innate level 
and they're able to do amazing things. I, I see society in a very similar sense in that all of these rules were, were meant to set up before we had the ability. Like they, they set up the game and they wrote the rules and everyone's playing the game. But I think it's really important to, to digest what the game is trying to say and then play it your way. Mm. Sorry, I didn't and, to ramble there. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm following. And I think that, I think that, yes, like there's the monopoly and people can play that. That's a part of the system. I think that's what you're talking about, you know, going to college and, you know, different corporations. And there's nothing wrong with that. That game is real in its own right. And there's other games at hand. Um, and like you were saying, there's there's real consequences to both games, you know, playing both games and and just kind of like learning what the rules are. And I think the thing that I enjoy about stepping outside of the Monopoly game is that there are different rules and that the rules can very much bend. Like you're talking about what Spielberg did and how he was able to take his understanding of film and almost bend the rules so that he could then fund, you know, different projects that he really believed in and fund himself. I'm sure he was employing uh, a ton of people that he cared about who he believed in um, and allowed them to flourish, which, you know, then repeated that process many, many times over. I think that, I think it's so important to see the different rules that are at hand and for no matter how old someone is, I know we have some younger listeners who are maybe in their, their teenage years. It's like, you know, there, there's all these rules that I think as a younger person, it's harder to understand outside of that because you're like way more entrenched in, in that system. Um, but I really encourage like young people to realize like at any age you are able-bodied human being who can do amazing things and sometimes like the construct of things like high school and junior high and you know having a college degree I mean I, I know there's young people 13 14 15 who are very brilliant who have multi-million dollar ideas and some of them you know are, are able to manifest them but so many of them are are kind of just put in this mind frame of like, oh, I'll do that when I'm older. And, you know, I'll wait to do that when I'm, when I'm, you know, I'm able to do certain things. Um, but I see that there's going to be a shift to even younger people's ideas, uh, being able to manifest those into like intrinsic, intrinsically valuable things in the world. And we see that in music and we kind of see that where technology is, is uh, pushing, th pushing the boundaries and making it a lot more flat. Absolutely. Well, and I also think that this next generation, I, I say that funny. I'm 23. I'm I am this next generation, but you know the kid the kids going through high school now and junior high now. I think, you know, I was on the tail end of this, but before you know my parents, you you really weren't given the much opportunity to think outside of of the system, and you weren't really given much opportunity to think freely and independently. Um, so a lot of and that's that's why you see you know these generations who are so entrenched in this worldview and and. I think one of the reasons I was able to start thinking kind of on my own quickly is because I went through a very you know traumatic crisis in high school and I, I very much kind of had to, to survive. But the, the kids coming up now and the kids who have access to all this information and all of this stuff that's, got, that's online, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very, if you do your research, 
you can you can start to see the the playing field and i like the analogy of when you step into like a, like let's say you're going to play a game of capture the flag right and you step on the field i mean the first thing you need to do is is go and and get to know the field mm-hmm. go and get to know where you can hide things and where things are hiding and blah 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 and it's like get to understand your area and your battleground and understand the whole playing field and then you can really start your game so in high school when it may be really difficult to start playing and it may be difficult and it's not impossible it just takes a lot of effort and a lot of drive to really break through some of those barriers i would say do research and really understand the world you're stepping into understand where there are obstacles where there are limitations and instead of looking at the kind of the rules of the game as rules just look at them as aspects of the playing field so because even the term rule is weird because it, it it has this the word rule is, it means two things. It means something you have to obey. And it means if someone rules that they're, you know, reigning, I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's like the word it itself is, is a prisonary word. Mm-hmm. So I would say like even abandoning the idea of, of the fact that these are rules and just looking at them as aspects of the playing field. One aspect of the playing field is if you do this, this will happen. Not if you break this rule, you'll be punished. But if you do this, this will happen. And taking these moral arguments out and taking these, these kind of weird assumptions we put on it. So then uh, what you're going to get to is you're just going to get to, it's, also, it's almost like not a game of chess because that, that's simple and that's, and that's different because that's about leverage and power. But it's, it's really just you get to a point where you really understand the flow of how everything's working. You see how the world works. You see the flow of information. You see all this stuff. And when you get to that point, then you're coming out of high school and you can start making your moves and you can start really, really like push, pushing into this. But essentially what you're doing then is you're, is you're using this information and the resource of the internet to de-abstract the problem before you start playing the game. Mm. And find out the steps that it takes it, to actually get there. Exactly. So, and cause you can start playing the game, you know, in, in high school, but if you, if you want to get through high school and, just have a good time in high school and, and, and learn how to learn and, and stuff like that. I think it's great. I think, you know, your youth is something you really need to cherish, but at the same time, just like keep, keep, some, keep in the back of your mind that this isn't all of life and you need to make sure that you're ready to take the step into the next chapter of life when that comes. And it's a lot easier to take the step willfully than it is to be forced into it. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to take ownership of choices, like you were saying earlier, and, you know, just say, like, I'm here because I'm choosing to be here rather than like, oh, like, this is what my parents are telling me to do, or this is what society wants me to do. Like, just there's so much strength in in power in taking that that real ownership. So I I, I love that. Would you say... um, you know, how does this relate to because we've had like some some dope, deep discussions and you've you know, you've kind of tapped into this mind flare concept that you're writing about this book. Um, I'd love to hear more about that and just how that that integrates with your worldview. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the book, it's, uh, it's it's early stages, but it's called Mind Flare in the Puzzle Room. And essentially what it is, it's it's a breakdown it's hard. It's, it's very abstract and hard to explain. Again, being early stages, it's, it's interesting. But Mind Flare is basically a program that I've manifested in the world. So it, it's a world in the future in which 
they've discovered this frequency of vibration that when you experience it, your consciousness leaves your body and no one really knows where it goes, but no one's come back alive. Everyone dies in that place. So it's this massive mystery. And the whole idea is this is kind of the abstract idea of is the afterlife. What is meaning? What is God? Like these people go somewhere when they experience this thing, but nobody knows because they're not, they're not coming back to tell about it. Um, and, and basically mind flare is this program that was invented to basically deconstruct the main character. His name is Freeman. You, and you're, you take, you are the perspective of Freeman first person um, to take this person's ego and, and systematically deconstruct it. So to get rid of the ego, not just in a metaphysical way, but in a physical way, taking parts of the brain out. And the whole idea is it's an exploration of what does it truly mean to let go of, of self, to let go of the sense, not in just a, you know, hopefully optimistic, ideological, let's see if we can do this one day, more like a, what are the, the kind of the actual steps of self-awareness and identity psychologically that would need to be dealt with in order to do that. So it's obviously very abstract and very, you know, surreal. And then, and then the puzzle room is what they've nicknamed this dimension. So the first half of the book, Freeman's being systematically de deconditioned and mind flare actually stands for metaphysical infrastructure, neurologically deconditioned, facilitating the liquidation of autotomic identity roots. It's called <laughs> mind flare as an acronym. Um, and then the puzzle room is essentially a compilation of short stories in which Freeman goes through to realize that the awareness that experiences every single one of these realities is his awareness, is the same awareness. And it actually doesn't even belong to him. And the whole, the whole purpose of the book is understanding that we are all equally a part of this world and we simply are different perspective facets of this, of this mm. universe. And mm. that when, when you come to understand that there is no separation and that duality is an illusion and that you actually have this beautiful ability to shine your perspective and communicate with yourself and create. And that's the thing is, is you know, life loves hide and seek. That's the whole game. If, if it was all light, it wouldn't be anything. If it was all dark, it wouldn't be anything. Mm -hmm. So the whole point is you have to have both and you convince yourself that you're only dark and then the light reveals itself. And it's an amazing moment and you'd experience this beauty. And then you live in the light for so long that you think there's only light and then the dark comes in. It's a scary moment and it's absolutely terrible. But what that does is it gets you to experience the full spectrum of creation. You need this illusion of duality for the spectrum of creation. But once you're able to break that down, then you're able to get like down the, the idea that, that it actually is separate, that you actually are separate from the universe. Then you're able to actually get rid of a lot of fear and you're able to eradicate the fear because then all you're doing is there's, there's not necessarily a right or wrong. If you are a part of everything, and a part of everything is perfect, well, then you're perfect. Hmm. But what does that mean? Well, it means there's no morals involved. It means you are. you are, you exist and that's it. And that's amazing and that's beautiful. So everything on top is just music and you can choose to play happy music or you can choose to play sad music or you can choose to play whatever music you want. But understanding that that music isn't the innate life, that is simply the icing on the cake. It hmm. creates a very, it, and that's kind of what this whole book's about. And it's about, this idea of really understanding what it means to, to perceive and to be, be alive. And obviously many, many people have written about this concept, but I just, this is, this is the way I wanted to write about it because I love fiction. And I mm. think that being able to create a fictional story that it, it alienates yourself enough 
that the audience can buy into this character as an abstract idea. Like philosophical books that are written by the person who's thinking it, it are very weird because you're just hearing their argument. What mm -hmm. I'm doing is I'm, I'm constructing a world where you're going to experience my argument. You're not going to hear it. You're going to experience it. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be able to understand what I'm trying to say on a level much further than just words. Mm, that's dope. Douglas, I love that. I think that, you know, that concept is, is going to bring people the ability to just tap into, you know, what does change look like for them to be in control of that music? You know, it's like they're in control of what music plays on top of that cake, you know, what the, what their icing is. And, you know, I, I really love that ability. I think that at the core, you know, that's what I'm about as far as just like helping people understand where do you want to go? You know, where you are right now is a part of the path of where you want to go, you know, and for people to make that choice, like that's, that's basically what we have, you know, that's the power that we all have. And that's the, the power that I see in you and, and our many collaborations, you know, our projects and, you know, our many, our conversations that we've had together. It's, it's been, uh, you know, a blessing to have someone that has that same mind frame of, you know, how to take something, you know, that, that we're all living in this space and, you know, continue to create meaning from it and, and be inspired by the mission underneath it all. Absolutely, man. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure to, to get to know you and work with you as well, man. I mean, one of the things that, that I'll say is that beautiful projects are always the most fun. In terms of when a project, no matter what type of work it is, when it's, when it's really working, it's always a ton of fun. And I think our relationship is a great example of that. And that, you know, I, I'm very proud of some of the work that we've done together. And I wouldn't say any of it has been not fun. And, <laughs> and, and, and in that, I think it's, it's, it's really important for people to realize that you don't have to be miserable. You don't have to be a miserable CEO or a miserable employee like you can choose to find joy in in what you do and if you're choosing that and what you're doing isn't bringing you if, if you're choosing that and what you're doing isn't bringing you that joy well then you know where to start yeah brother it is a joy working with you and you know I'm, it's an honor to kick off this episode number one with you hey! <laughs> just su super grateful to, to have this this energy and for all the listeners out there on Spotify and Apple and all the places you can find us on Anchor, just really appreciate y'all for tuning in and, you know, for stepping into the life that you want to live, you know, changing, changing your choices so that you can step into the mind frame that is going to manifest the life that you want, tapping into more financial abundance. You know, we all know money is not the goal and with money with resources there's so much that we can do there's so many people we can help um and just being able to tap into the the power like like douglas is saying the power of our ideas creating value out of our ideas you know and believing in ourselves believing in our value is at the core of being able to do that and creating those deals and being able to manifest things that you know people just sometimes dream about and they think that's out of out of their reach you know but at the end of the day you know we're all human beings we're all capable we're all 
able to tap into the greatness that we have inside of us, you know, the, the, the immense amount of gold that we all have inside of us. So I'm just super grateful to have you, Douglas, as an example of that, you know, really rocking it out here in L.A. and around the globe. And, you know, if you could share where, where can people find you, you know, how could people get in contact with you and support your projects? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got my production company website, which is c49productions.com. It's where I do a lot of the, the content work. Um, thought work, that's T-H-O-U-G-H-T-W-R-K, no O in the work. Um, that's on Apple Music, Spotify, whole nine there. And yeah, just uh, I got, got some music out, got some movies out, and hope you, hopefully you'll be hearing more from me. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks again. And thanks to y'all. Enjoy the rest of your day. Peace and love. The Real Change Agent. Peace, y'all. Adios.